Now, we come to the ministry of the Word of God before the Lord's table. I want to do a communion meditation this morning. So would you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. In the upper room, the night before his death. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, we read in verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave to them, the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the cup, in like manner, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, even that which is poured out for you. Now let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on the ministry of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the holy scriptures. Thank you for their disclosure of the person and work of your beloved Son. We pray for your blessing upon us as we celebrate the Lord's table and consider its significance. Send us the Holy Spirit. Write the truth on our hearts. Make it to be a time of blessed remembrance, memorial of the glorious work of your beloved Son, Jesus, accomplishing redemption and putting in force through his blood the blessedness of the new covenant. Dear God, we pray, bless your word and bless this time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Now today as we enter the Advent season, I want to remember the permanent and blessed impact of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on God's people. He forever altered the life of the people of God when he reformed God's people and mediated God's new covenant with them. And on the eve of his death, he instituted and ordained what we call the Lord's Supper as a permanent memorial of his redemptive work. He said, this do in remembrance of me and of God's new covenant with his people. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So he identifies communion or the Lord's Supper as a symbol or sign of the new covenant. And when he mentions the new covenant, he affirms that he is fulfilling the inspired prediction of the prophets about the substance of the new covenant, as we read in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 32, as quoted by the writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8. 
So, consider with me this morning, please, as we prepare to take communion, first of all, the substance of the new covenant, and then the surety of the new covenant, where Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, or the guarantee of the new covenant, and thirdly, the symbol of the new covenant, this cup is the new covenant. So you have the substance of the new covenant, the surety of the new covenant, and the symbol of the new covenant. First of all, consider with me the substance of the new covenant. Now we read in Hebrews chapter 8, that the new covenant mediated by Jesus Christ is a better covenant enacted upon better promises. It is mediated by Christ between God and his people. And his people, the messianic remnant of Hebrew Israel. Now, did you notice an apparent tension And if I were going to deal with this in great detail, I would deal with it either in a seminary class or in a Sunday school class. But this morning I have to at least mention it because it just comes sticking right out of the surface of those texts. Did you notice in Jeremiah, and when it's quoted again in Hebrews, how the scripture identifies the partakers of the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with, with whom? What is, do you remember what it said? Who are the partakers? What? I can't hear you. Israel. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. So then, does it not strike you as a little bit strange or needing to be explained why Jesus says, this is the new covenant. I'm making the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant. The new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And Paul quotes that text when the church in Corinth is taking the Lord's Supper, which is the token of the new covenant with Israel and Judah. Why is the church in Corinth composed mostly of Gentile believers partaking in the the token of the new covenant with the house of Israel? Didn't that just kind of jump out at you? Well, the looks on your faces, it didn't do any jumping at all. Right? Never thought of that before? You did? You didn't? Didn't that strike you? You don't just read over stuff like that. This is the covenant I'm going to make with the house of Israel. This cup is its token. And Paul's saying these Gentile believers are taking it. How does that make any sense? It's supposed to be with Israel, right? Now how come those Gentiles who believe are taking that, which is a token of a new covenant with Israel? Mm. Now, as I say, that's what seminaries were invented for, answering questions like that. That's a question for seminary classes, or at best, and I think it should be addressed in a Sunday school class, because here we are, just like those Corinthians, and we're about to take the Lord's Supper. 
What are we, Israel? We are? How can we be Israel? Well, here's the story. Now, I'm not going to give you the seminary version. Not going to give you even the Sunday school class version. Because I don't think that some of you are going to say, okay, that's it, Pastor. I see it now. I can't with good conscience take the Lord's Supper anymore because I'm not Israel. I don't think that's going to happen this morning. Do you? Anybody here now struggling with conscience that, oh, I can't take the Lord's Supper because I'm not Jewish? No? No struggles like that? So I don't have to give you the seminary version. And I don't have to give you the Sunday school version. But now, having brought it up, it would be the stupid version not to explain it. And it's possible that I could give you the stupid version. It wouldn't be the first time. But not this morning. Now, the thing is, I have other things that really need to be said this morning, so I don't want to spend the vast majority of my time justifying taking the Lord's Supper before we take the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Whether you understand how we're Israel or not, we're going to do it. But the point is, I should say something. So here's the point. This is what Jesus did. Jesus reformed Israel. Now, I'm going to read a key text, and it's in Acts chapter 3. Verse, and I'm going to need, I guess I'm going to read more than one. But I'm going to at least read two of them. And I'm going to try not to read too many of them. Acts chapter 3, here's a crucial text. That verse 22 to 26. Moses indeed said, A prophet will the Lord God raise up to you from among your brothers like to me. Well, that's Jesus. To him will you listen, hearken. And whatsoever he speaks to you. You've got to listen to Jesus. So Jesus comes to the remnant that returned to the land, according to what Jeremiah predicted. And he makes the new covenant with a remnant of that remnant. And it shall be that every soul that will not listen or hearken to that prophet, every soul that won't listen to Jesus will be utterly destroyed from among the people. They will be cut off from Israel. They will be removed. Everybody that wouldn't listen to Jesus, all of that remnant that returned from captivity back to the land of Canaan, there they were. Jesus came to them just like promised. And here's the word that gives us to understand what happened. Every single person in that society that wouldn't listen to Jesus was cut off, excised, removed from the people of God. Removed from Israel. Paul says, unbelievers were broken off. Now, how could you tell who was in and who was out? How could you tell which of the Jews, which of those Hebrews, listened to the Messiah and received this teaching and which of them didn't? Did Jesus hold inquisitions and bring every person before his judgment throne up in Nazareth? Is that the way he did it? No. How did he do it? 
He did it by forming a community, a visible community of those who were listeners to him, who were learners from him. And what do you call somebody who listens to him and learns from him as, as, as master and teacher? You call him a disciple. And so he formed a community of Jewish disciples. And he marked out that community by an ordinance, baptism. And all that he received were Jews. They were all Hebrew. They were all Jewish. Peter and James and John were all Jewish. His disciples were all Jewish. They were Israel. They were the remnant of Israel. As Paul says, even now there is a remnant according to the election of grace. They were Israel. They were what was left of Israel. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And those people that were there, his disciples, they were the house of Israel and the unbelievers were cut off. Those that wouldn't become his disciples, that wouldn't listen to that prophet, that wouldn't receive Jesus and his teaching, that rejected him as their Messiah and as their king, they were cut out of Israel. Every soul that will not hearken, will be removed from the people of God. So the people that night, they were all Jewish. They were the remnant of Israel, according to the election of grace. They were the Israel with which God made the new covenant. The rest were cut off. So wait a minute, that only explains half the story. That doesn't explain a church in Corinth. No, you're right, it doesn't. That's even perhaps more remarkable. Makes an old man want to dance. Now, some people can't accept the fact that those Gentiles are receiving the sign of the new covenant, the token of the new covenant. Some people can't accept that. They say, well, there's more than one new covenant, or the new covenant's for the millennium, thousands and thousands of years from now. No, it isn't. And the church in Corinth is the proof that it isn't. It's the one and the same new covenant. And how could those people be included in Israel? That's the mystery. The beauty. New covenant Israel doesn't only include ethnic Hebrews. New covenant Israel includes believers from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. The unbelieving Hebrews were broken off, and believing Gentiles were grafted in by means of faith. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 9, Verse 6 and 7, when he's talking about the fact that the vast majority of his Jewish Hebrew relatives rejected Christ, rejected the gospel, he says, it has not, Romans 9, 6, as though the word of God has come to nothing. For they are not all Israel that are of Israel, neither because they are Abraham's seed are they all children How many Israels? They are not all Israel that are of Israel. How many Israels? Two. One people of God, two Israels. One people of God, two covenants. 
First covenant with Hebrew Israel, circumcised in body, Abraham's physical posterity. Second covenant, new covenant with first Messianic Israel and then Christian Israel, Abraham's spiritual children circumcised in heart. You were grafted in. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, even so at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. The election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. You will say to me then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, by their unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Don't be high-minded, but fear. Because if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the goodness and severity of God toward them that fell severity, toward you God's goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you'll be cut off too. And they also, if they continue not in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So if Hebrews who don't believe in Jesus as their Messiah receive Him as their Messiah and King and Savior, the Son of David, they're grafted back into Israel's new covenant. They were broken off from the people of God. Jesus radically by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit transformed the people of God. From Hebrew Israel under the old covenant. And then on the night he was betrayed to Messianic Israel under the new covenant. And then when he poured out the Holy Spirit upon Gentiles from every kindred, tribe, and tongue, Christian Israel under the new covenant. Because the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Christians means those who are disciples and believers in Christ from every branch of the human race. That's why those Gentile believers in Corinth are taking the Lord's Supper. And that's why we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Praise be God. What a privilege to be part of Christian Israel. Now that's what it means when it says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We are the house of Israel. We got grafted into it. Jesus radically transformed it. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that, and that's just wonderful. I just, it makes me want to dance for joy. Now, I know that I'm not gifted to dance for joy. Makes me want to do it anyway. Which brings me To the better promises. Okay, it's a better covenant. But look, it's a better better promises. Now, again, I could go through reading all kinds of passages again, but Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, quoted in Hebrews 8, 6 to 9, and then verses 10 to 13. Now, if I get into this right now, Probably take the rest of the time, but I don't know any better. 
I've only been preaching for 40 years, so I don't know too much about it at this point. Why is it a better covenant? Why are the promises better promises? What do you think? Right, I'm going to show you this. I'm just going to show it to you. Shame on me for taking the time because now we're messed up. But I'm going to do it anyway because I don't know any better. Exodus chapter 19. Let's go. Let's turn there. You start in verse 3. Now Moses is a mediator because Moses keeps going back and forth between God and the people of Hebrew Israel when he's bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And Moses went up to God, verse 3, up to the mountain. The Lord called him out of the mountain. This is what I want you to tell them. Verse 4, you have seen what I did and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, Mount Sinai the place of his special presence back in those days. Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure to me above all people on the earth, because the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Let me ask you a simple question. That promise, is that good or bad? What? Good. It's not bad. I actually heard a preacher one time say, Israel should have rejected it. What? Should have rejected it. Should have rejected salvation by works. Folks, this is not bad. The fact that the new covenant is better promises doesn't mean that the old covenant was bad promises. But notice what it says. I'm going to emphasize what it says so that you get my point. Now, therefore, if, if, is that emphasis enough? You will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you will be a peculiar treasure to me. Then you will be, and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? Now let me read the promises of the new covenant. Then I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a question. What's the difference between the new and the old, and why is the new better? All right, now here's the new. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make after those days. I will put my laws in their mind, and they shall all know me, and I will be merciful to their sins and remember them no more. What's the difference? Why are those promises better than the promise of the old covenant on which the whole system 
of Hebrew Israel was built and maintained for 1,500 years until the coming of Christ. What's, why is the one better than the other? Do you notice anything? What do you notice? You're shaking your head, but you're not telling me. What do you see? We will? Doesn't matter. I don't see mentioned to us at all. Okay, that's a different text, right? You got the right idea. You got the right idea. I'm just being, uh, well, don't, no need to mention what I'm being. Not on tape. Right? What, you're right. So what about the first one? What did you notice about that one? If you will obey my voice. Now, he's talking about obey my voice. What voice? Uh, let me ask the next question. In chapter 20, did that whole group of people hear God speaking with his own voice out of heaven? Yes or no? Yes, they did. Yeah, study your history. They heard it. What did that voice say? He spoke these words and he added no more. What did he say? You don't know? The Ten Commandments. The voice of God out of heaven from Mount Sinai spoke to Israel the Ten Commandments. So he says, if you keep the Ten Commandments then you will always be my special people and a kingdom of priests when Messiah comes. You will inherit the royal priesthood of Messiah. That's talking about the hope of royal priesthood. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. I know it's going to sound like, oh, here goes another rabbit trail. No, it's not. It's saying that this promise is is that you will be blessed as a nation with royal priesthood as inheritance and the coming of Christ, who is both king and priest. And you will be kings and priests along with Jesus if you obey my voice. Now, is that talking about salvation by works, being saved by works? What kind of obedience is he requiring from them? He's requiring gospel obedience to the Ten Commandments. If you walk, in, if you're saved, and you live in gospel compliance with the Ten Commandments, my moral law, then you'll experience blessing as a society forever. And when the Messiah comes as a royal priest, you'll be royal priests too. That's the old covenant promise. Is that a good promise? Yes. The new covenant promise is a better promise. And Adam got the spirit of it. Why it's better? Why is it better? Because it contains no ifs. There's no ifs in it. That old covenant promise is conditional. If you walk in gospel compliance with the Ten Commandments, then my blessing will be upon you as a nation. And you'll continue to be my special people. And when Christ comes, you'll enter into the blessing of royal priesthood. Old covenant. Not talking about salvation by works. It's talking about a society living in gospel obedience to God and being blessed as they live in that gospel obedience. Ah, but the new covenant is better. Why is it better? It's not saying if you do this, I'll write my law on your heart. If you do this, you'll all know me. If you do this, I'll forgive your sins. There's no if. It doesn't depend on us. It's not talking about what we must do. It's talking about what God will do. 
It's unconditional. I will write my law in their heart. No condition. I will forgive their sins. They will all know me. Those dear people are better promises. The promise of the Old Testament was good. The promises of the New Testament, praise be to God, are better. The New Covenant has better promises. Unconditional promise. And these promises are promises of spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing. Moral blessing. I will write my law on their heart. Experiential blessing of fellowship with God. They will all know me. Legal blessing. The forgiveness of all of our sins and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. He's saying I'm going to form a society. New covenant Israel. And that society in perpetuity from the first coming to the second coming of Christ will be marked by the possession of these spiritual blessings. I will write my law on their heart. And they will all know me. And their sins I will remember no more. The forgiveness of sins, legal blessing. Fellowship with God, knowing God, experiential blessing. Writing the law on the heart, moral blessing, moral trance, heart transplant. God's operating room where he takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Where he changes an evil heart to a good and honest heart. By writing his law upon it. The very law that he spoke with his voice to Israel. What a privilege to hear the Decalogue with your own ears. But then he engraved it on tables of stone. But now by the Holy Spirit he writes it on hearts. That he renews by the Spirit. Which is better to hear it. And to have it written on stone. And to be told if you obey it. In gospel compliance, not to earn salvation, but out of gospel appreciation to me for redeeming you, then my blessing will rest upon you as a society until Messiah comes. And when he comes, you will inherit the messianic inheritance of being royal priesthood forever. Which is better, that or this? Not if, but I will write it on your heart. I will write it on your heart. This is... A society marked by the experience of regeneration. So that if somebody is not regenerate and doesn't have a new heart with God's law written on it, they don't belong in the church. They don't belong in Christian Israel. They have no right in it. Now, is it true that hypocrites could get into Christian Israel? Yes, because nobody has the infallible ability to read the heart and see genuine conversion infallibly. And it's possible that somebody may profess faith credibly but not truly be saved and be included in the community of the new covenant even though they're not really saved. But they don't belong here. 
And they have no right to be here unless they have a new heart. And unless they know the Lord. Because they're not going to teach every man his brother and neighbor. We're not going to go up and down the church to church members and say, you need to come to know God. Because they all do know God. And if you don't know God, you have no right to be a church member. You have no right to belong to the society of Christian Israel on earth. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And that's why we don't have sacrifices year by year in our worship services of corporate worship as Christian Israel. We don't have sacrifices in which we're constantly remembering that our sins have not yet been dealt with. But we have a memorial that our sins once for all have been dealt with through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And that constant remembrance of unfinished business with sin has been removed from the corporate worship of Christian Israel. That's why we have the Lord's Supper and not a sacrificial system. So, if you don't know God and your sins have not been forgiven and you don't have a new heart transformed by the Holy Spirit, you don't have a right to belong to the church. Because the church as Christian Israel under the New Covenant, has experienced these wonderful blessings. What a privilege to be part of a society that for 2,000 years in fulfillment of the New Covenant is preserved by Jesus Christ and will be preserved until he returns. What a privilege. Which brings me then much more briefly to my second point. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He puts it in forth or ratifies it by his death. And by his endless resurrection life, he guarantees it. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16, it explains the connection with blood. It says, for where a testament is, oh, last will and testament, there must of necessity be the death of him that made it. In other words, you know, when you get to be my age, you write your last will and testament, you revise it, you write it, you get it notarized. That You want to be prepared so your family doesn't have to be put through the difficulty of you dying, quote, intestate, meaning without a will. But my will is not enforced while I'm alive. My will is not enforced right now. It says, for it does never avail while he that made it lives. For it says, it is enforced where there has been death. And then it says, wherefore... Even the first covenant was not dedicated without blood. So the blood was symbolic of the fact that this divine pledge, this divine promise, this oath-bound promise is as certain and final and irrevocable and immutable as the last will and testament of somebody who's dead. You could change your will and testament while you're still alive. I could change my will tomorrow, and so could Ginger, and I could rewrite it. But not once I'm dead. Once I'm dead, I can't change it anymore. 
Once I'm dead, it's not ratified yet. It's not enforced yet because I'm still alive. But once I'm dead, my will comes into force and it's executed. That's the point. And to illustrate the permanence of God's promise. It was ratified in blood. But here's the beauty. It puts it all together. <laughs> it's mysterious. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's, it, it's almost incomprehensible. But God becomes human and then he experiences death. And by his actual real death and shedding of his blood, his new covenant is put in force. That was pictured in the old covenant. So this is why covenants of God are pictured as last will and testaments because the new covenant is put in force through the death of God incarnate. God incarnate himself, God the Son, actually dies. His human nature is separated. His human soul separated from his human body. And when it is, the new covenant is put in force through his blood. The new covenant is not only ratified by his blood. It doesn't stop there. It is guaranteed by his resurrection life. Hebrews 7 says, and in verse 20, inasmuch as it is not without taking an oath, for they indeed have been made priests without an oath, but he with an oath. The Lord said to him, you are priests forever. By so much has Jesus become the surety, the guarantee of a better covenant. You see, he is the surety of a better covenant, not only because it was put in force by his death, but also because it is guaranteed by his resurrection from the dead and his session at God's right hand, where God swore to him, you are priest forever after the power of his resurrection life. It is guaranteed that these promises of God that there will always be his people on earth, marked and characterized in every generation by the moral blessing of a new heart, the legal blessing of forgiveness of sins, the experiential blessing of knowing him. Jesus in his resurrection life is the surety, the guarantee that this will never fail and never stop until he comes again. Blessed be God. Where the old covenant had a condition, if. And they broke it. The new covenant, unconditional, has no condition. It has a guarantee, a surety. Jesus Christ, whose death, atoning death, puts it in force. And resurrection life guarantees its fulfillment in every generation until he returns. And finally, this morning, Consider with me the symbol, the symbol of the new covenant. When we get down to the Lord's table, he says, this cup is the new covenant. This cup equals the new covenant. That means this is the token. It is the symbol of the new covenant. I heard people recently, and I don't want to get on a rabbit trail. It's just an illustration. Asking, and I forget the context in which I heard about, what does the flag mean to you? 
And people saying all this stuff about what the American flag means to them. But what none of them said was the thing that was the most obvious thing to me, which is what you say in the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. The flag stands for the republic. That's what it means. It's a symbol. It's a token of the republic. And so the Lord's Supper. Now, let's see, no rabbit trails. That's the relationship between a token and that for which it stands. So what does the Lord's Supper stand for? This cup is the new covenant. It stands for, it represents, it's a symbol of the new, the new covenant. Now, I only made one covenant in my whole life. And when I made that covenant, I gave a token. A token that I no longer have, but a token that is in this building, seated right over there. Well, it's not seated over there, but it's on the left hand of a person seated right over there. In fact, I looked at it this morning to make sure it was still there. And when that woman made a covenant with me 43 years ago, she also gave me a token. Here it is. Now that I have. But that's not the token of my pledge to her. This is the token of her pledge to me. She made a promise to me. She made a pledge to me, a vow to me 43 years ago, and she gave me a visible token of it and stands for it, and this is it. Similarly, I made a token to her, a pledge to her 43 years ago, and I gave her a token of it, and it's still on her left hand this morning, a little tiny gold band. That's the token of my pledge. He says when he makes the covenant with Abraham that circumcision is the token. And he equates the covenant with circumcision just like Jesus does. Similarly, when he makes a covenant with Noah and his family when they come out of the ark, he says that the token of that covenant is what? The rainbow. And he says whenever I see a rainbow, I will remember my pledge never to destroy the earth with another worldwide flood. So the token is connected with the promise, the oath-bound promise, the sworn pledge of the new covenant. It's connected with this token. And when God sees this token, he remembers those promises of the new covenant. He observes the token like he observes a rainbow and he remembers the promise, no more worldwide flood. So he sees this token, and he remembers the promise. There will always be on earth a society of them that have the law written on their hearts that know me personally and that have their sins forgiven. And through Jesus, the, the guarantee of these promises, this will never, ever fail. When God sees us doing this, he remembers that. Isn't that wonderful? This is the token of God's new covenant pledge. So by one offering, he has perfected forever those that are set apart for God.
Now where remission of these is, the writer to Hebrews says, remission of sin. There's no more offering for sin in our worship. Having therefore, brothers, boldness to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, the new and living way, Hebrews 10, through the veil, having a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not. No matter what happens in our society, our hope is in the second coming of Christ's eternal life and blessing, and this is a reminder of God's pledge to bring us there. And let's consider one another to provoke to love and good works. We've got to watch out for one another and for our souls to love each other as a family of believers. What a privilege to be part of such a society and such a blessing. You know, finally, we don't deserve these blessings that God has given to us. We didn't earn them. They're not just for us. They're for any who want them. You want the Lord Jesus Christ You want the blessing of being part of this wonderful new covenant community. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sins and rebellion against God and turn to Jesus Christ in faith and he will receive you and you will be part of the blessed community of Christian Israel under the new covenant that God has preserved for 2,000 years and will preserve no matter what happens politically. He will preserve until Jesus comes and Jesus himself raised from the dead is the guarantee of that promise. This is what you want to belong to. This is where you want to be. You want to be in such a society, such a community, and you're warmly freely, sincerely invited to come. Whoso is willing, let him come. Take the water of life freely. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And like he had mercy on us, he'll have mercy on you too. May God be pleased to bless the ministry of his holy word. Let's pray.